Philippians is quite a book. Four chapters, 104 verses. You can read the entire book in 15 minutes. It's shorter than your average newspaper article. And it is filled with gospel gold. Uh, you, you need this Philippian sermon series. Because it gives gospel clarity to many of the everyday things you face in life. Uh, do you struggle with anxiety? The answer is here. Do you need conflict resolution in any of your, res in any of your relationships? Philippians is the answer. Are you a pessimistic person and tend to lack deep joy? Find it here. Do you have trouble sleeping because something has taken away your peace? Have you ever witnessed a, a church conflict and wondered how you were supposed to respond? Do you lack gospel-centered friendships, true accountability, true encouragement? All of this and more is why you need this sermon series through the book of Philippians. This book also contains what I call the, the greatest hits of coffee mug verses. <laughs> Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.6 Do not be anxious about anything. Philippians 3.13 But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And I am looking forward to smashing all of those coffee cups and gleaning the actual meaning behind those phrases. Of all the churches in the New Testament, this church, the church at Philippi, is my favorite. I find myself visiting the congregation often. Uh, and in fact, I think it's Paul's favorite church as well. It definitely wasn't the church at Corinth. I mean, he verbally slapped them around in the letters he sent their way. If the Tinder app was a church, it would be the church at Corinth. Uh, if, if the church at Corinth were a talk show, you would call it Jerry Springer. I mean, it was the church gone wild. And, and I don't ever enjoy visiting that church in my reading. Definitely not the, his favorite. Now, Paul also wrote to the churches of Galatia. But they were not his favorite. He spent most of his time correcting their slipping theology. Their lack of standing up when heresy creeps into small groups, creeps into their sermons, crept into their worship. I mean, because of my commitment to solid theology, I wouldn't even be able to be a member of the Galatian church. Corinth was Paul's headache church. Galatia was Paul's hard-hearted church. But Philippi, Philippi was Paul's sweetheart church. He speaks with such warm affection. So complimentary, so loving, so encouraging. Well, enough of that. Let's visit the church. Better yet, let's be this church. So I want to tell you where I'm going before I take you there. So let me show you the map. We're going to begin with the birth of the church. That's in Acts 16. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time there. We're going to spend 25 minutes before we touch the first word of the book of Philippians. So we're going to begin the birth of the church, Acts 16. Then we're going to move to the essence of the church. It's the first two verses of the book. Then we're going to move to the work of the church, verses 3, 4, and 5. I'll weave application throughout instead of saving them all for the end. So let's begin with the backstory. Before we touch the first word of Philippians chapter 1, we must go to the, to the delivery room of Acts 16 and watch the birth of this church. Uh, Paul was a first century follower of Christ. He was also a master church planter in the Middle East. And he wanted to, to plant churches in Asia next. So he gathers together a team. Uh, Silas 
We'll call him Cy because he probably had a big beard like Cy Robertson from Duck Dynasty. So Cy, then Timothy. This is Paul's apprentice church planter. He's learning from Paul. We've had lots of these type guys in our church come and go. Uh, these are preacher boy Timothys. And then Luke, a medical doctor. He took care of Paul. Uh, oh, oh yeah, Paul wasn't in the best of health. He did all of this with some type of illness, but he didn't let his illness keep him from obeying Christ. Paul attempted to jump on a plane and fly to Asia, but God said, there's no seats for you. God literally forbid him to preach the gospel in Asia. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Is God prejudice? After the divine no, Paul received a vision from Macedonia, of a man from Macedonia, which is southern Europe. And the man says, come over and help us. So the team eventually arrives at Philippi. And this city has a rich history even outside of the Bible. Let me connect the secular history for you. Four centuries before the team arrived, the city had been taken over by Alexander the Great's father, King Philip II of Macedonia. Philip was a, a humble fella, and he named the city after himself. That's four centuries before. One century before Paul arrived, Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, and the general Mark Antony defeated Caesar's assassins in a battle at Philippi. And the victors celebrated their triumph by constituting Philippi as a Roman colony, which Acts 16 verse 12 mentions. How many of you have ever been to New York and you visited Chinatown? Did you raise your hand, visited Chinatown? We got a few travelers here. You looked around at all the Chinese people, the Chinese billboards, the Chinese restaurants with real Chinese food, not what we have here in Clarksville, the real stuff. You're seeing all these Chinese symbols and you think, I'm in China. You're not, but you kind of are. And that's what it would have been like to have been in Philippi. You would think you were over 4,000 miles away in Rome. Philippi was governed by Roman law. Latin, the Roman language, filled the streets. There was Roman dress, Roman architecture, Roman senate, Roman customs. The team walked into little Rome. And Paul had never been to Rome before. He's always wanted to go. But at this time in Acts 16, he's walking into Rome town. And one more thing about this city. It was a bit like Clarksville. The city was filled with soldiers and their families. The emperor sent retired soldiers to settle in Philippi. If you were riding in a horse-drawn carriage through the cobblestone streets of Philippi, you would see purple hearts on the back of nearly every buggy. Now to the delivery room. Of the smorgasbords of religions in Philippi, there was one missing. There was no synagogue in the city. Paul couldn't follow his normal customs of going to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. There wasn't ten practicing Jews to form a synagogue. So tradition said if there were not enough Jewish males, women would meet at a riverside. And this is where the team encounters Lydia. Now what do we know about Lydia? Well, she's done very well for herself in the fashion industry. She works on Madison Avenue selling purple clothing. Having the ability to sell fine linen that had been dyed purple was like owning a microchip patent for computers. The purple dye was obtained from the secretion of shellfish, and not a few. 
Approximately 8,000 shellfish were required to produce one gram of purple dye. And so purple fabric was the lexus of clothing. Purple garment was worn by the emperors. Private citizens wore splashes of purple as proof of their wealth. And Lydia was the, the middleman, the broker in this operation that began on the coast and worked its way up into Europe. She's from Thyatira, which is a massive port city in the ancient world, and she's currently living in Philippi. It might be helpful to think of these cities that shape the fashion industry. She basically has a, has a factory and a home in New York and Paris. She's doing well. This girl's bringing in some dough. And we also know that she is religious, morally conservative and upright because she's going to Bible studies on the Sabbath. This team interrupts the lady's Bible study. And I like the phrase in verse 15. Notice it if you would. Verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. <laughs> How did she get saved? The Lord opened her heart. Some people say, I opened my heart and invited Jesus in. Friend, you didn't open your heart. No, you couldn't pry your heart open if you had the biggest crowbar in the world. Do you even know your heart? Jesus broke into your sinful heart and saved you. Lydia started the day as a non-Christian and went to bed that night as a Christian. We should pray for things like that to happen all the time here. Some scholars believe that Paul could have been teaching these ladies for weeks because of the verb tense. That's why I always say, if you're not a Christian, keep coming. Some of you did not come here because of the message. Uh, you came here because your kids loved it. Or your friends have been hounding you about coming with them, and so you just finally gave in, and that's how you started coming. You didn't first come to hear me unpack the claims of Christ. But now God is doing in you what he did in Lydia. The verse says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. That's the word used for addiction. And here's what you will find. You will begin to crave the preaching of the word. And then God will open your heart like a flower opening toward the sun. Lydia invited Paul and his team to stay in her big old house. In other words, she said, please use my house to base your ministry. Let my business resources be used to further the gospel of Christ. And I find it really interesting that this woman was willing to connect her business success with the propagation of the gospel. Where today is the president of an organization, the owner of a business, the CEO of a company with the commitment that some of their corporate profits be given to their church with the idea that their company could financially advance the gospel. God often advances his gospel through bank accounts like Lydia's. And you say, Kyle, I don't know if I fooled you or what, but I don't have a bank account like Lydia's. Okay, well, let me apply it to you. God opened Lydia's heart, and she opened her home. What a ministry. Inviting people over for dinner. How did Jesus do evangelism? Not on a doorstep, but around the table. People open up around a table. And not just their mouths, but their hearts. What if you determined to have one non-Christian over a month to sit at your table? Use your home like Lydia for the advancement of the gospel. 
Now, this team's second encounter involved a demon girl. She started following the team around for several days, saying, verse 17, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, what's wrong with that? Everything she says sounds correct to me. Sounds like free advertising. Well, it's like the adulterer in your office inviting everyone to her church. Or the soldier who sleeps around asking, asking you, do you know Jesus? It's not the best PR for Christianity. Put a jeer in her voice and a cynical sneer on her face and then repeat the words. These men proclaim to you the way of salvation. Yeah, right. We know from verse 16 that she has a spirit of divination. That's a word in the Greek, puthon, which is where we get our English word, python. You've seen a python squeeze its victims, right? Well, that's what this satanic spirit was doing to her. Paul doesn't like it, so he casts the demon out. Now, what do we know about this demon and slave girl? She brought her oppressive owners a prophet from fortune-telling. She was basically a prostitute, but selling the future instead of her body. And I love that this girl's story is right after Lydia's, because it's so different. Lydia's put together, driven, brilliant, savvy, wealthy, well-known, well-respected. This girl has nothing together. Yet Jesus steps into her mess and saves her. Now Luke doesn't technically say that she became a Christian, but I think there's inference here. Let me ask you a question. How many of you were, were pretty good people before Jesus saved you? I mean, maybe you were saved at, when you were younger, or maybe you were saved when you were older, but you're a pretty moral guy or a moral gal. How, how many of you, you know, that, that's, your, that's my wife's story. You, you were saved out of morality. You're a pretty good, pretty good person. Would you raise your hand? That's not mine, so I can't, I'm not, I can't raise my hand. Okay, how many of you were saved out of not that? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Jesus found some of us in the nastiness of drugs and alcohol and all types of sexual licentiousness that wreaked havoc in our world as we treated ourselves cheaply. See, Jesus saved some out of immorality and some out of morality. When Paul cast the demon out of this girl, it hit the fortune-telling pimps right in their wallet. When this girl stopped telling the future, they lost their money flow. So they arrested Paul and Sai and brought them into a large open area before the magistrates. Why were Paul and Sai singled out among the team? Remember, it was a four-man team. So why were these four arrested? Well, possibly because they were Jews and they looked like Jews. Why were these two out of the four arrested? Possibly because they were Jews and they looked like Jews. Timothy was half Jewish. Luke was fully Gentile. They looked like Gentiles. Anti-Semitism lay very near to the surface throughout the Roman Empire. So they get the people that look like the Jews. And notice what they do in verse 20. These men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering that the jailer keep them safely. 
They beat him with rods. Like they beat Jesus Christ. Their backs lacerated and bloody. These rods had spikes in them that caused injury to their organs. Smashing vertebrae, crushing ribs. Often beatings like this left the the back looking like pulp. Causing intense hemorrhaging. And then into prison you go. And Roman jails were hard places. Not what we have in the States. They didn't have cable TV, three square meals a day, and cigarette privileges. No, we're talking dungeon here. No lights, no air. This was not an Andy Griffith jail cell with curtains and Aunt B bringing you dessert. It is dark and dank. And then the stocks. And this is not Williamsburg where you and your sister put your head in the holes and, and you take a picture. Roman stocks were unbelievably painful. They were torture racks. Now, if this were you, and you're lying there in, in your own human waste, and your body is being stretched and contorted in ways that it was not meant to be, what would you do? Plot your revenge? Call your lawyer? Nurse your wounds? Demand a fair trial? Shout obscenities at, at the jailer? Get upset with God that, that he would have you there to begin with? In the most impressive scene, Paul and Sai, backs sticky with congealed blood, began singing. And I'm not sure what they were singing. Maybe a jailhouse song. Maybe they got the other prisoners involved. And everybody in the whole cell block was dancing to the jailhouse rock. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I can imagine the conversation. Paul says, Psst, sigh. Sigh responds, what's up, Paul? Paul, it's cold down here. Sigh. Yeah, it is. I'm glad that uh, Timothy and Luke don't have to go through this. Yeah, me too. I could sure use Dr. Luke right now for these medical wounds. So. Hey, well, hey, Paul, what, what do you want to do? Oh, no, you bring those Uno cards. No, no. How, how about we sing? Oh, which one you want to sing? Well, there's lots of blood here. We're in a jail cell filled with blood. How about there is a fountain filled with blood? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. I don't know what they sang. But the prison walls echoed with hymns composed only recently by the early church. Do you praise God in the midst of suffering? Your business is going badly. Marriage is a wreck. Someone just ripped your heart out. Unjust treatment at work. Ridiculed for your faith. You received a bad medical report. You've never felt more vulnerable. In fact, you've never felt more alone. Who would even consider like these guys singing in the midnight hour? Charles Spurgeon, one of my dead mentors, said, Anyone can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the mature singer, the mature singer is he who can sing when there's not a ray of light to read by. Praising God at midnight is praising God in advance. 
And how can we praise God in times like these? Well, Tertullian was a North African theologian who lived in the second century. He said this, and I quote, The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. We are so soft. We are so soft in our little cushion seats. We're going to finish this building before this building over here before, um, before the new year, or I'm going to die trying one of the two. We're going to get that finished, and we're not going to have cushion seats. We're going to have very uncomfortable seats because we are too comfortable here. What do we know about this jailer? Well, they were often highly decorated Roman soldiers, typically war heroes, and as a retirement gift, they were given jails to run. So this man is older, he's battle-tested, and like many retired soldiers, he's a hard man. Suddenly, God wants to bring another person into the church at Philippi. So he sends in verse 26, notice, a great earthquake. Notice on the screen. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now I've seen earthquakes make walls fall down, I haven't seen a whole lot of earthquakes that make shackles become loosened. Something divine about this earthquake. And if I were Paul, I'd have been like, Sai, it's time. Let's roll out. The jailer's knocked out over there by some fallen debris. Take a permanent marker, draw on his face, put some lipstick on him. We are going. It's not what he did. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul yelled, Stop! See, this guard would take his own life before submitting that someone escaped under his watch. He's a prideful soldier. Verse 29, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Sai. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, how did Paul answer that question? He did not answer, you don't have to do anything. You're already saved. Nor did he say, let me talk to the elders of my church about that. In fact, here's their number. No, no. Paul can give them a direct answer. Believe and be saved. Paul says, in effect, by believing you will be saved. You will be. Not hope so, think so, give it your best shot. You will be saved. And he was. Chrysostom said that the jailer washed their stripes while God washed his sins. The flag of the gospel has been raised on a new continent. This church is the first church in Europe. Now let's look at these three conversions as a whole. We've got Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. It's interesting that Lydia... Remember Paul received the vision of a man from Macedonia? It's interesting that his first encounter was not a man. It was not a European man. In fact, it was an Asian woman. He, he was told before, don't, don't go to Asia Minor. Don't, don't preach the gospel in Asia. But the first one converted in Europe was an Asian. Interesting. Notice the ethnicity, Asian, native Greek, Roman. Economically, you've got white collar, no collar, blue collar. 
Spiritually, you've got a God-fearer. She was very religious, but not a Christian. Uh, slave girl, spiritual turmoil. And then the soldier, practical and indifferent. And how are they reached? Each reached a little differently. One with words, one with deeds, one with example. Every morning, a Jewish man would pray. And this is recorded in their ancient prayer book, the Sadar. He would say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Jewish men felt lifted above these kinds of people. Look at the first, first three people converted in Europe. A woman, a slave, a Gentile. All mankind, rich, poor, black, brown, yellow, white, young, old, conservative, liberal, religious, irreligious, from good families, from broken families, they all have one problem, sin. And they all have one hope, salvation through Jesus Christ. All ethnicities and classes of people can be saved. And people from all types of spiritual conditions, spiritual conditions can be saved. Some are really influenced by dialogue and argument and teaching like Lydia. Others are moved by deeds of mercy like the slave girl. Some are attracted to a Christian example like the jailer. But all of them are, are saved through responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know of some Philippi's? Just as Philippi was a beachhead in Europe, we need new churches and many unreached places of the world. That's why every week we have an unreached people group that we pray for in our worship guide. I fully expect for some of you to leave us and go to these unreached beachheads. Do you know some Lydia's? People who have moved to our city because of business or vocation. Do you know some tormented girls? Those who are dealing with hurt, abuse, human slavery, even demonic power. They need mercy, counsel, freedom. Do you know some blue-collar dudes? They watch your life before they listen to one word from your mouth. The gospel will change their lives and bring a diverse group of people together. That's the birth of the church. Now let's look at the essence of the church. When I, when I speak of effort, essence, what I mean by that is, is what is it that makes the church the church? There are many things that surround churches, and you can take them away, and it's fine. They're still the church. But there are some things if you take away from a church, it's no longer a church. So this is what I'm talking about. What is the essence of a church? Notice verse 1 in your text there. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseas. That's how we read it. They just brush over it. He's writing 10 years after the birth of the church. And Paul has a little more gray hair in his beard. He's a bit heavier. And old Timothy, he's matured. He's grown into his head. That little preacher boy had a big old head. He's grown into it. And is this first verse, is this just stock boilerplate preliminaries to be skimmed over quickly to get to the meat of the matter? Should we process it in a way that we do all in personal letters? When we see to whom it may concern or dear valued customer. On the surface, Paul is opening his letter with the conventional greeting that would be found in every first century Greek correspondence. In Paul's day, letters typically began with the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and a greeting. Standard formula, basic components. But Paul here radically modifies the custom and he makes each section a tool for teaching theology. 
These are not meaningless pleasantries, but powerful expressions of grace. Name of the sender. How does he pack it with theology? Well, there's a noticeable absence. Paul usually begins his letters to churches by identifying himself as Paul the Apostle. He did it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. He says, Paul the Apostle. It's another way of saying, hey, you, you better listen up. He doesn't do that with his sweetheart letter. His apostleship was not challenged in this church. And I want you to notice the unmistakable overtones of humility. He says, Paul the servant. And it's an unfortunate softening of the Greek noun doulos. The words found 127 times in the New Testament. The King James Version, the King Jimmy, translates it slave one time. Instead, for the others, he translates it servant. Why? Because the word means servant? No. There are five or six other words for servant in the Greek. This word means slave. And the stigma with the word slave is why we translate it 126 times out of 127 servant. And translators are, are playing fast and loose with the word doulos. And I just say, stop it. We lose something in our hesitancy to use the word slave. We are slaves of God. It is foundational for understanding the gospel. And, and the thought behind changing the word to servant is that it's not as offensive to our culture. It's not a stumbling block to people coming to Christ. It doesn't sound as stone age. But my contention is... What if God uses that exact word on purpose as a large obstacle in people coming to him? If you come to Christ, you come as slave. If you don't want to be a slave, don't come to me. See, I'm trying to show you that there's an evil slavery and then there's a righteous slavery. And you say, Kyle, I don't have a, I don't have a category for a righteous slavery. I don't have a category for a faultless master, only a... a, a, a a master that's in fault. Well, well, I'm here to give you a category for a faultless master. Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will make you ruler over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 1 Corinthians seven twenty three. You were bought with a price. A slave language. 1 Peter two sixteen. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him, show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John. Slave is used for those who believe in Jesus Christ, like today we use the word Christian. Christian used three times in the Bible. Slave, 127 times in the Bible. This should be our most familiar term with being a, a Christian. Being a slave of Christ may be the best way to describe a Christian. The readers of this letter had slaves all around them in the city. When you hear slave, I don't know what country you come from or state you come from. You probably think of a, a particular, what a person looks like. These were lots of different races. White, Euro-Barbarian tribal slaves poor Italian slaves, African slaves, as well as Greek slaves. They would call these men talking tools. Like a hammer, but a hammer that talked. And Paul says, I'm a talking tool. 
The Spurge commented, he said, The early saints delighted to count themselves as Christ's absolute profit, property, bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. Jesus saves you to become a forever slave. Whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. So Paul uses the sender component to unpack the gospel. Now notice how he uses the recipient component to unpack the gospel. He refers to the people he's writing to as saints. Now who is that? Is that the, is that the New Orleans saints? Is that the Catholic Church saints? There are ten steps to become a saint in the Catholic Church. But in Jesus' church, there's just one. Saint is a designation used in Scripture of any and all of those who have new life in Christ. All Christians are saints. And the idea of sainthood is often scary to us, but, but we need to begin using it. And maybe the next phrase will help. Notice this, saints in Christ Jesus. Throughout his letter, Paul uses in Christ as a comprehensive description of every Christian. You are either in Christ or in Adam. I I hope you know. We we know this, right? I hope you know that just because you're in church doesn't mean you're in Christ. Just like you can be in a garage but not a car. Or in a hospital and not a doctor. Just like you can die of starvation in Chick-fil-A. You need to make sure you are truly in Christ. Now, Christian, let's just take a survey. I want you to think about this answer, okay? How many of you have sinned this week? Christian, how many of you have sinned this week? Would you, would you raise your... Okay, that's all of you, and just a couple of you are just bold-faced lying, all right? <laughs> so we're, we've all sinned this week. After you sin, you need to realize sin may describe some of your activity, but it does not define your identity, You are in Christ. Philippi might be your mailing address, but Jesus Christ is your permanent residence. That's where your life belongs. That's where your heart belongs. Like roots of a tree live in the soil, like bird in the air, like fish in the water. A Christian is always and everywhere encircled by Christ. That's glorious. A Buddhist does not speak of himself as in Buddha. A Muslim does not... Refer to himself as in Muhammad. A Christian scientist is not in Mary Baker Eddy. A Mormon not in Joseph Smith or in Brigham Young. They might faithfully follow the teaching of these religious leaders, but they're not in them. Only Christians can claim to be in their leader. So the whole first first part of the verse, he's addressing saints. These are church members, Christians. But notice there's three groups of people in the verse. And there's three groups of people in the church. We have saints, that's members. Then you have overseers, that's the same word for elders, bishop, pastors, all used interchangeably. So you have members, pastor, and deacons. There's an order to the structure of a church. And we need to return to the biblical definition of a church and a biblical definition of structure. The qualifications for pastors and deacons are laid out clearly in the pastoral epistles. I've unpacked those numerous times. And since I'm preaching for 55 minutes today, I don't have time today. Unless you want to stay after, and then I can can do that too. Paul doesn't unpack it here because these elders and deacons are functioning properly. What's What's his model? Plant the gospel, plant a church. They say, no, 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 I just want to plant the gospel. Paul knows nothing of that. 
Paul knows nothing about someone coming in and saying, I'm just going to plant the gospel but not a local church. He's never seen it. He's never done it. Plant the gospel, plant a local church. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if any of you have received emails from me, you know I often sign my letters, grace and peace. Paul wants his letters to be a means of grace. That they result in peace. Peace of heart, peace in the church, peace in the family. Grace was the Greek greeting, peace was the Hebrew greeting, and Paul is combining the two. It's interesting, I was studying this week. Just six years before Paul wrote this letter, the Roman statesman Seneca had coined the phrase Pax Romana, which was official Latin for the phrase Roman peace. Notice how Paul flips it. I know you're living in little Rome. I hear a lot about Roman grace. I hear a lot about Roman peace, but I come in God's grace and God's peace. So let me summarize the essence before we move on. What is the essence of a church? The essence of a church is it's made up of a group of people who realize they are slaves of God and saints of God. It's made up of people who gather not in a man-made organization, but a God-made organization, a church under some type of leadership structure involving elders. Now, thirdly, the work of the church. What were they doing and what do we need to be doing? Notice verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I can just see Paul sitting down, picking up his quill, wearing a North Carolina Tar Heel shirt, like all God's good missionaries. Picks up the quill and he smiles and and he's thinking, back to the, he's thinking back to the first time he stepped to that river and he said, my name is Paul. And she said, my name is Lydia. This is our study group. He's seeing again in his mind's eye the very moment when the demon left that slave girl and she stood in freedom. He's remembered the jailer fall at his unshackled feet and say, what must I do to be saved? All of that drives Paul to thank God for them. They're easy to love. And let me just commend you, church. You are easy to love. Second service more than the first service. But you no, I'm kidding. We love everyone equally. You're easy to love. Have you ever noticed that Paul rarely thanked God for things? Paul thanked God for people. A lesson not only our children need to learn, but a lesson we need to learn. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. I mean, it's just, I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. A glad heart. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Two key words. The first one is this, gospel. What is it? What is the gospel? The gospel is not something that tips you into the kingdom, and then you need discipleship to make you nicer. Nor is the gospel everything that the Bible commands. There are lots of things in the Bible that flow from the gospel that aren't the gospel. And if you make something a gospel issue, you need to make sure it's actually a gospel issue. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nail that down in your soul. Second word, partnerships. What are gospel partnerships? So I'm going to end here. When I say end here, five more minutes. Okay. What are gospel partnerships? Well, apparently the Philippian church for the last 10 years have been deeply involved in partnering with Paul through prayer, financial sacrifice, distributing his letters to others, hosting him on his trips, 
carrying on the work of the gospel locally at Philippi. And the word partnership is from the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that appears all throughout the Bible. We often translate it fellowship. And when you think of a fellowship, depending on your church background, if some of you came from a church background, you may think of fellowship punching cookies. Or if you're really spiritual church background, you may think of fellowship fried chicken. (laughs) This is different. Okay, having a cup of Tim Hortons coffee while watching a hockey game with a non-Christian is called hanging out. Doing the same thing with a Christian is called koinonia. Gospel partnership is a robust fellowship that rides, it rides on a mutual commitment to the gospel. And there's a three-way bond, Paul, Philippians, Christ, and a gospel glue holds it all together. And, and even that in itself is crazy. Because not many of these members had anything in common. They didn't go to the same high school. Uh, They didn't have many. They they didn't go to the same high school, live in the same neighborhoods, not the same clothing, but they believed the same gospel. And it, it, it produced an intense, pulsating fellowship. Now, human friendship is a wonderful thing, but partnership goes beyond friendship. Partnership occurs among friends committed to a common cause or a common goal and flourishes through their common pursuit of that goal. D.A. Carson states that in the first century, if Harry and John bought a boat to start a fishing business, they'd entered into a fellowship. And he adds, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing, say it again, self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. In his book, The Fellowship of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien writes a thrilling story to illustrate this idea of gospel partnership. Pretty sure I've read it to you before, but I just absolutely love it. He says, and I quote, This community is made up of radical diversity. Little, resilient, pipe-smoking hobbits with big, hairy feet from the Green Shire. A few warrior men, a wizard, and an elf with amazing archery skills. And out from under the mountains, dwarfs with an axe. Together they share a common mission of defeating the forces of darkness and saving Middle Earth. They were willing to die for one another and for the mission. End quote. You know what I love about being the pastor of Faith Family Church? You know what's so sweet about being the pastor of Faith Family Church? I get to partner with you, resilient, pipe-smoking hobbits with hairy feet. And you warrior men, and you elves with amazing archery skills, partnering with the gospel. Now, let me just list some gospel-centered partnerships just in our church. Uh, Whenever you contribute to to this church, you are making it possible for a ton of discipleship to take place. Training international pastors with strong theology and international preaching. Daily expenses to minister to our growing congregation. Our new building over here that we're raising funds for. These are all gospel partnerships. It ought to be one of our aims as a congregation to cultivate that kind of deliberate gospel partnership. Do not, do not be a Sunday attender. Be a gospel partner. This team of four, Paul, Timothy, Luke, and Cy, they partnered together to bring the gospel to Lydia and the jailer. And then Lydia and the jailer partnered together to bring the gospel to the other people in the city of Philippi. 
Friends, someone partnered together to bring the gospel to you. And now is your time to step up and partner together to get the, the gospel to the people of our city. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.